Welcome to another episode of Million Dollar Stories, where we get to interview authors from all over the world. One of the blessings of this job is I get to interview people that are in the entrepreneur space, or they have learned something that they can share with you. If you're out there and you're looking to start a business, maybe you have a business, I think this podcast episode will be great for you. Um, the book that we're talking about today is called Dragon Tactics, How Chinese Entrepreneurs Thrive in Uncertainty. And just from a quick review for myself, it's basically an outline of how successful entrepreneurs in China, it can translate Chinese economy and go into anybody who has a business. So I'm fascinated with this. Dragon Tactics, How the Chinese Entrepreneurs Thrive in Uncertainty. And we have both authors here, Aldo Spanjars, I think I'm saying that correctly, and Sandrine Zerbib. Mine is perfect. Oh, yeah, yeah, I got yours. Aldo Spanjars, how am I? Can I? Can you Spanjars. If you Spanjars. really want to do it correctly, it's uh, Dutch Forgive heritage. Me. Forgive me. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, I'm really fascinated with this content. So uh, let's start off with, uh, with the genesis of the book. Why did you two get together and write a book about dragon tactics? Well, first thing you have to understand that we, we know each other. We've known each other for a long time. We work together. And uh, we were no longer working together, uh, but I mean, we used to, um, I, I used to head uh, Adidas in uh, Greater China, and uh, I had uh, recruited Aldo shortly before the Olympic Games in 2008. So we, you know, we worked together for a few years, and then later on, we realized that uh, both of us had this book in our mind and had had this book in one's mind for many years. And when we learned about uh, Carrefour, the French uh, supermarket company, deciding to just like throw the sponge and stop doing business in China and sell their operation in China, it was for both of us, it was a big shock. And we thought, wow, something really is big there. And we should we should write a book together about it. Mm. And we knew already for years that things in China had to be done differently. We both came very early to, to China. Um, and a lot of multinationals in the early days um, were trying to stick to their own global strategies. Um, but if you looked at uh, the people that actually were really making progress and were succeeding, they had fundamentally compromised. Um, and what we ended up writing in our book actually um, very much reflects that had multinationals in the early days done what we described in the book, um, a lot more companies would have been successful. So it was really an accumulation of, of years of working there and studying how Chinese entrepreneurs operated uh, that brought uh, um, the, the the content of the book together. And just from a quick little background perspective on you, Aldo, I'm just going to read off something that's on your Amazon profile. Over his 25-year chi career in China, Aldo has worked as the CEO of Lacoste, Greater China as the COO of Adidas Greater China. Welcome to another episode of Million Dollar Stories, where we get to interview authors from all over the world. One of the blessings of this job is I get to interview people that are in the entrepreneur space, or they have learned something that they can share with you. If you're out there and you're looking to start a business, maybe you have a business, I think this podcast episode will be great for you. Um, the book that we're talking about today is called Dragon Tactics, How Chinese Entrepreneurs thrive in uncertainty. And just from a quick review for myself, it's basically an outline of how successful entrepreneurs in China, it can translate Chinese 
economy and go into anybody who has a business. So I'm fascinated with this dragon tactics, how the Chinese entrepreneurs thrive in uncertainty. And we have both authors here, Aldo Spanjars. I think I'm saying that correctly. And Sandrine Zerbib. Mine is perfect. Oh yeah, yeah, I got yours. Aldo Spanjars. How am I, can I, can you Spanjars. If you Spanjars. really want to do it correctly, it's uh, Dutch Forgive heritage. Me. Forgive me. Thank you so much for being here. And, uh, I'm really fascinated with this content. So, uh, Let's start off with uh, with the genesis of the book. Why did you two get together and write a book about dragon tactics? Well, first thing you have to understand that we we know each other. We've known each other for a long time. We worked together, and uh, we were no longer working together. Uh, but I mean, we used to. Um, I, I used to head uh, Adidas in the Greater China, and uh, I had uh, recruited Aldo shortly before the Olympic Games in 2008. So we, you know, we worked together for a few years. And then later on, we realized that uh, both of us had this book in our mind and had had this book in one's mind for many years. And when we learned about uh, Carrefour, the French uh, supermarket company, deciding to just like throw the sponge and stop doing business in China and sell their operation in China, it was for both of us, it was a big shock. And we thought, wow, something really is big there. And we should we should write a book together about it. Mm. And we knew already for years that things in China had to be done differently. We both came very early to, to China. Um, and a lot of multinationals in the early days um, were trying to stick to their own global strategies. Um, but if you looked at uh, the people that actually were really making progress and were succeeding, they had fundamentally compromised. Um, and what we ended up writing in our book actually um, very much reflects that had multinationals in the early days done what we described in the book, um, a lot more companies would have been successful. So it was really an accumulation of, of years of working there and studying how Chinese entrepreneurs operated uh, that brought uh, uh, the, the the content of the book together. And just from a quick little background perspective on you, Aldo, I'm just going to read off something that's on your Amazon profile. Over his 25 year in China, 25 year career in China, Aldo has worked as the CEO of a Lacoste Greater China, as the COO of Adidas Greater China. So Adidas, right? Everybody knows this company. So this means you were probably in the rooms with some of the big players and you've seen how they operate. And uh, both of you worked within Adidas. Is that right? Yeah, I was, the, I was the president of Adidas Greater China. And uh, when I recruited Aldo, he was the head of marketing at a very important time because it was the preparation of the Olympic Games. Wow. And then later on, I became COO. Wow. Okay. And this... Was it a shock? Was there a difference between maybe American leaders or people outside of U.S. and how Chinese entrepreneurs think? Was there a, a a mission that they were on? Maybe they had core values that were unbreakable. Anything that really stood out whenever you were in those rooms? I think there are many differences between the way Western leaders and whether they're Adidas or whether they're in other companies um, how Western leaders think and approach business versus how Chinese leaders uh, approach business. Um, and in essence, that's what we ended up writing in the, in the book. Of course, there are also similarities, um, but 
when it comes to um, to culture, when it comes to taking risk, when it comes to um, uh, adaptability, flexibility, experimentation, there are fundamental differences between uh, between Western leaders and um, and Chinese leaders. Obviously, um, Western leaders like Sandrine and myself, who have spent a long time in China, uh, we have probably become more like um, Chinese entrepreneurs in the way we operate and the way we like to operate. Mm. Do they have a a, a, a a stronger belief in the long term rather than the short term? There's a great oh, saying. Yeah, yeah. Oh, 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 if yeah. you can touch on that, please. I think this is one of the major differences. It's obviously not the only one, but it's a major difference. I would say that uh, most of the entrepreneurs in China, they have a very long term, not just long term, very long term. So sometimes they talk about a hundred years of, uh, you know, dynasty, ahead. dynasty mentality, right? It's not it's legacy, not, it's yeah, dynasty. And also, I mean, in that generation, most of them were founders. They were not professional managers. They were the founders of their company. That was their baby that they were projecting their baby and the family, I would say, a hundred years ahead of time. And in between, they would not go for a three-year plan, five-year plan, but they would actually have a vision for this very long-term vision, precisely, but they would navigate from this point today to that point very far ahead uh, in a very flexible manner. Mm. But keep in mind that China is a very, very um, fast changing um, environment um, and has certainly been over the last 30 years and will, will continue to, to do so. So if you think the way we think in the West in sort of strategic plans, by the time in China you've written it, uh, it's already outdated because things have changed so quickly. So. Uh, Chinese entrepreneurs think very long term, um, but they realize that they have to remain extremely flexible in the short term. Um, in the West, we have a yearly st- a strategy and we want to stick to that strategy. And anyone who's trying to deviate from that strategy um, um, gets a knock on their fingers and say, oops, that's not the strategy. Whereas the Chinese, with their long term vision in mind, are actually extremely short term thinkers when it comes to having to react to opportunities or challenges that they come across. I interviewed- this was a very big learning for us uh, in our practice of, of business and of management. I think these are this is one of the biggest things we learned in China, that uh, we shouldn't be stuck to our midterm plan, and mm-hmm. we should really look around, understand what's going on uh, around us, and really constantly adapt uh, instead of saying, okay, the plan is A, I only do A. But really, if we need to go X or Y or Z, and we still have this long-term vision in view, we should go there. I mean, we should not be stuck in the plan. So one of the things actually we describe in the book is that a lot of Chinese companies have replanning processes. So they do a yearly plan, um, but within their yearly plan, they have a full flexibility to actually adapt that plan throughout the year if circumstances change. Um, and obviously, we believe that as the world in the West is also becoming more uncertain and um, is probably going to change faster with artificial intelligence, with uh, climate change, uh, the needs to be more socially uh, responsible, the rise of China and their companies. So the next 10, 15 years in the Western business world are going to look uh, a lot more uncertain compared to the last 15, 20 years. So in that environment, it's also important for Western companies to bring more flexibility in in, in their strategy, um, not just their planning, but also the execution of it. 
So, and you know what is, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yes, you know what is interesting, uh, Mike, is to see how Western companies have touched upon this a little bit, uh, but they have not really kept this after, but it was during the COVID crisis. Mm-hmm. Because during the COVID crisis, you could have massive surprises. Literally overnight, you could lose 50% of your turnover. Um, anything could happen in one day. And it was constant flow of information, which was always a very big surprise. So this is the only time when I really saw Western companies decide to work a little bit like this. In other words, they would not you know, get stuck in their plan, but they would meet every day with some key people and decide, okay, today we do this, tomorrow we do that. And the day after they would change again because there is a new flow of information. So this has been probably the best lab or the best test for Western companies to experiment this. Wow. So flexibility is more prevalent in the Chinese entrepreneur than, let's just say, an entrepreneur in the West. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Wow. That's fascinating. See, in my initial thought of the Chinese entrepreneur, it's you know very strict. It's very regimented. It's been broken up and processed and planned for years, and they don't sway. But they do move fast, so it makes a lot of sense. I was thinking maybe it has to do with regulation and certain you know stipulations that they don't have to play by those roles like we do here. So I thought that that was tied to it. One one uh, point to um, to to make it a little bit more clear. I think if you if you go to a Silicon Valley or a real entrepreneurial um, part of of the U.S you would probably find a lot more flexibility um, um, along the lines of how the Chinese operate. Uh, our book was also very much written in mind, not so much for the Silicon Valley entrepreneur, but also more for the for the larger and mid-sized companies in the United States um, and also in Europe, obviously, um, because it's especially those companies that need to learn um, what we used to call entrepreneurial skills. Every CEO we've ever worked for or worked with, they always say, oh, we need to become more entrepreneurial. But then when you actually bring them entrepreneurial ideas, um, they they start backtracking and say, oh, no, that's not global strategy or, oh, no, that may be a little bit too risky. So it is these type of companies that in the future, more uncertain business world in the West need to relearn some of those pure entrepreneurial skills. But I, I would also add that it's interesting the vision you had about Chinese companies, because some of it is not completely untrue. But this is where we have the paradox. We have this utter flexibility, but at the same time, because the sense of the collective action and the sense of the group is much bigger and much more profound in China than it is uh, in the West, the execution is going to be much more regimented. Uh, However, you have this paradox of complete flexibility and very strict and regimented execution. Got it. So work ethic is seems unmatched, maybe, right? The West will struggle with having a workforce that competes on that level. So th- there is more buy-in, I would assume, in, in Chinese companies, I would yeah. think. Yeah. Yeah, we so, can definitely okay. say this. Yeah, sorry. Uh, oh, uh, one thing that I've noticed, and uh, we could touch on this, we kind of already did, but uh, I have a client that says, hey, if I'm doing business with you, it's because I envision you in my life 10 years from now. 
And it's very much in alignment with the Chinese philosophy. Relationships are extremely important to them, right? They won't do business with you unless it's a long-term relationship. Is that one of the dragon tactics to find relationships, cherish them, nurture them, and never stop growing them? Within the company, yes. Less so from a um, company to customer relationship. We don't really touch that in the book. But um, what we talk a lot about uh, in the book is um, relationships within the company. Um, an entrepreneur would build um, sort of a strict inner circle um, who um, of, of whom is expected a very high level of, um, of loyalty, often more um, uh, loyalty rather than ability. But the entrepreneur would look very much uh, after this, this inner circle. Mm. Um, beyond that, um, people come and go a bit more often because it very much depends. Can they really find um, um, the right space for them to explore themselves entrepreneurially? Chinese entrepreneurs always look for other entrepreneurs. They want to hire people that are very entrepreneurial themselves. Yes. If they're not, uh, uh, you're being phased out very quickly. Um, or you, you're being put in a corner where you simply execute and, and follow orders. So, yes, relationships are important, certainly um, um, outside the company as well. Um, but as a dragon tactics, we really talk about the inner circle um, of the entrepreneur. Having said this, I think uh, at, at the center of this relationship matter, be it uh, internally or externally, is the question of trust. Um, actually, China is a low trust culture, which mm. we actually discuss a little bit in the book. And as a low trust culture, it takes time to actually gain the trust of people internally and externally. And it's true that when you become a, a partner uh, of, a, of a Chinese company, it is quite often for the longer term uh, because it's based on a very solid trust. And you could relate this with uh, ecosystems. Chinese have been very, very good at really de deploying ecosystems instead of single companies. So you've got one company, let's say, for instance, Alibaba or Tencent or Xiaomi, at the center of an ecosystem made of a myriad of companies, and everybody works together. And obviously, with uh, the, the digitalization, the ability to use the same platforms, the same processes, the same data uh, to work together works very well. And Within the ecosystem, there is strong trust, and this works very well for the development of companies. Hmm. Outside of the relationship, relationships, the inner circle, I love that because I, I preach that to my team and the, the entrepreneur mind, mindset. Think like an entrepreneur. That's a phrase that we say hmm. within my company. Yep. Uh, and we call them intrapreneurs. Maybe they're not the face of the company, but within their own sector, they have to treat it like they own that, that side because exactly. they will be compensated because of it. That sounds like Absolutely. what you're saying about, right? Correct. You you are completely a Chinese entrepreneur with Jagan Tactics. <laughs> I like it. Uh, you do also talk about, I think in chapter four, adapt to change or die, all right? Mm. And you're talking about AI and the blockchain. These individuals will adapt and they adapt fast to technology. And uh, is there any other takeaway from this chapter that our listeners and viewers would really benefit from? I, I would say, but I, I will leave it then to Aldo, but I would say, generally speaking, even without talking about AI and technology, uh, it's really at the center of, uh, of Chinese culture, I would say, and business culture is this idea that everything around you changes. And if you don't adapt to this change, um, 
you're going to die. You will not succeed. So it's very, very deep, uh, not only in uh, business culture, but in culture in general. And as a result, what is important is to observe well. When actually in the West, we tend to think that a genius is someone who thinks well. In China, they would say a genius is someone who actually observes so well that he can catch opportunity. He can catch opportunities that the others can't catch early enough because they don't observe properly. And this is obviously highly supported by technology that provides the data to bring science in your observation. And then there is this sort of enthusiasm about technology that we don't have so much in the West. But maybe, Aldo, you want to speak about this. I wanna, first, I want to talk a little bit more about this, this ADAPT um, idea, because I think this is a fundamental um, difference in the way Western leaders and, chi uh, and, and Chinese leaders think. Um, as Sandrine explained, it really is, is part of the core. Um, and I think in the West, although we are all open-minded to say we need to adapt, we tend to move too slowly. Whereas the Chinese, they only know um, um, uh, a change because we think in start and stop in the Western thinking. In Chinese, uh, in Chinese thinking, time is a perpetual motion. It's, it's, a, it's an ongoing thing. So literally from, from day one, they are completely uh, um, ingrained with the idea that things have to change. Um, and I think this is probably for uh, for your entrepreneurial law, um, listeners. In an entrepreneurial environment, you need to be able to adapt. If something doesn't work, you need to drop it and you need to move on. Um, and I think for us, it's more difficult to drop it because we spend time and energy on it. And maybe if we think a bit, uh, if, if, if we wait a little longer, maybe it does work. The Chinese would not do that. They would drop it. They would move on to, to something different. Um, so this is absolutely critical for, for, your, uh, for your listeners, especially, as I said before, in a world that is becoming uh, a, a lot more unpredictable. Um, quick word on, um, on, on AI. Um, the Chinese are extremely open for technology, um, I think much more um, than in the West. Um, not surprisingly, China has become one of the most digital places um, on Earth in an extremely short period. Um, when Sandrine and I came to China, they still use these completely crumbled, impossible to see uh, banknotes. Uh, um, uh, uh, today, if you go to China, um, um, you would not need cash anymore, anywhere you go. I still get frustrated here in, in the Netherlands where I live now that I need to find money in order to pay for a parking garage. Um, you need to put money in the machine. Uh, no need for any of that in China. And that's just a simple example. So the Chinese are really fast adopters of technology. And so do um, 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 companies, of course. Uh, so they have very quickly moved to a very digital society. Um, and they now really start experimenting with a lot of um, artificially um, uh, artificial intelligence driven different business models. Also here, it is very much test and learn forward and test and drop if it doesn't work. And what we're seeing right now is that there are some really incredible uh, uh, business models being developed in China that are fundamentally different than what we're seeing uh, seeing in the West. Yeah, I think that the uh, the invention of the social credit system scares me, right? Because they are implementing it. I think the first ones to implement it, and I could only assume that is uh, that that will eventually um, migrate to other countries, including the United States, maybe on a long enough time 
timeline. So that's scary. Uh, the difference between an entrepreneur in the United States and one in China, let's just kind of break that down. Is it true that if you start a business in China, that the government does most likely get a piece of it? it I heard that from an interview I just did uh, earlier today from somebody who is accustomed to that um, country. And he said that if you partner up with a, a company in China, most likely the government has some type of involvement. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing for that entrepreneur because it's basically a partner with a, a huge entity. But what are your thoughts on that? Is that is that true? I, I don't. I wouldn't put it this way. I think it uh, it depends on sectors a lot. So if you're talking about electric batteries or electric vehicles or solar panels, maybe there is some truth to it. But if you're talking about the consumer industries, it's not really the case. Um, Got it. I think the government doesn't have anything to do with it. And even if you joint venture with another partner, it's very unlikely uh, that the, the government gets involved unless, I mean, not even unless, except I should say that at a certain size you need, uh, but it needs to be quite sizable, you need to have a representative of the, of the party in your company. And again, that is not always necessarily a negative. Um, it, it's I have not heard other than maybe an Alibaba case, but I think that case is is unique and therefore needs to be treated separately. Um, but I have not heard of anybody um, that has had significant interference of the government against the will of the company. Very often the government, or in this case, a, a worker's representative, can actually be very, very helpful. Um, I don't know. I, 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 the, the name has just um, um, left me. Left me. But there was a very interesting documentary of a Chinese glassmaker setting up a factory in the United States. Um, um, this must have been six, seven years ago. Um, and if you see uh, the role of the, the, the government representatives in helping the company versus uh, what they were experiencing with the unions uh, uh, back in the U.S. Um, which was very much detrimental of yes. the progress of the company, then you can actually see sometimes government uh, um, help can also be extremely beneficial. So uh, I don't know who you spoke to and who, who gave you that information, um, but to me, it, 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 it's being reflected. The way you brought it, is, it sounds more um, a negative or more scary than I think a lot of reality on the ground shows for a lot of companies. Oh, he was saying it was in a good in a good light also. So maybe okay, that was good. just a, a way that I I spun it. Uh, but he's very much in alignment with you know taking your company globally. And uh, he says when you work with a, a company in China, you know you get involved and work with them. But sometimes you will have to partner up, and most likely they have a tie to the government. But yeah, he says it was a good thing in, in reality. But you bring up a very good point. Entrepreneurs in China, maybe they don't have the minimum wage problems or the regulations or the union problems that people have in the West. So you can scale faster, right? And it seems like there's a that's a competitive advantage that they uh, that they reap. Yeah, but I, I think we should uh, we should uh, a little bit uh, bring some nuance uh, in, in, into this. I mean, there is a minimum wage. Um, it's actually organized by uh, by city or by province, and not uh, at the national level because there are huge disparities between different geographies in China. Uh, there is a labor law, which is uh, actually quite uh, demanding. It's probably yep. more demanding than the American one. Wow. It's probably closer to the French labor law than to American labor law. 
What I would say, though, is that there are some quite sizable or, or on the contrary, very small Chinese companies that probably don't apply the law quite strictly. And it is true that if you're a foreign company, you don't do this. You actually apply the law. You abide by the law quite strictly because you don't want to be in trouble. But having th- said this, there is a, a complete regulation on labor in China. Hmm. Interesting. Now, you've analyzed some of these great leaders, great entrepreneurs. Is there one, two, or three qualities of your of the dragon tactics that stand above the rest amongst these elite players? I would say their ability to adapt or die. Is, is the number um, one quality. So anybody listening, you got to fall in line with loving the new technologies and becoming a master at them, right? Yeah, adapt to die. And I, I would say what I was really amazed with, and even today, because I continue to work with China today, is consumer centricity. Consumer centricity is something we talk a lot about in uh, in the West, but in practice, I've really seen consumer centricity in action in China. And it comes from a very deep observation of consumers. And related to that, and I think that's probably your third point, is an absolute dedication to the use of data. Um, it, it's And the fast adoption of data models. Um, it, and one thing that is different is that in China, you have these very broad ecosystems that Sandrine mentioned earlier. So the amount of data that you uh, can actually uh, collect as a, as a company is very, very broad. Because if you're part of an Alibaba um, uh, ecosystem or a Tencent ecosystem, or increasingly uh, other uh, ecosystems like a Meituan or um, um, uh, or Baidu, um, the access you have to consumer data is tremendous. Uh, not because necessarily um, um, the Chinese can collect whatever they want. Also there, um, um, new laws have been implemented a few years ago that actually very um, uh, like the, the GDPR in, in Europe. So it's not that the data in China is now a free fall, uh, but one, there is a lot of historic data because they started collecting a lot in very, very uh, diverse and broad uh, um, entities, um, but also because they've built very good systems actually utilizing that data. Um, there's a very strong focus on, on consumer relationship management, um, very strong uh, data integrated systems there. Um, you see a lot of connection between social media, uh, CRM, and sales data all combined under under one roof. And obviously, uh, that is pretty much the holy grail if you want to understand the market. Hmm. And, and to give very specific example from uh, an industry uh, both Aldo and I uh, know pretty well, which is the uh, the clothing, the apparel industry um, or sports industry, which, uh, you know, um, the way they use consumer centricity and data in order to rethink their supply chain is something where they are really well in advance, well ahead of Western companies. So basically, instead of blindly produce tons of pieces that they have designed in headquarters without really knowing more than that, uh, what is going to sell and what is not going to sell. They have a much more reactive supply chain because number one, their factories are at home. Okay. Uh, And also because they use the data and the system to really react on trends very quickly, come with very small um, uh, series of, of 
products, see how it works. And if it works, they would go for a bigger quantity. And they do this constantly, which means that the idea that you blindly put on the market millions of pieces and cross fingers that it's it's going to sell, it's not the way they work. Wow. I looked at your website and uh, it's dragontactics.com. And it looks like there's a lot of uh, Confucius phrases and teachings throughout whether it's through your teaching or within the book itself. Um, I love some of the quotes and phrases that come from Confucius. So there's a lot of independent stoicism. You know, you're in control of your life, personal development aspects that I preach amongst my clients and my team. And it does come from Jim Rohn. Are you guys familiar with a motivational speaker known as Jim Rohn at all? No. Um, okay. I heard so the name, but that's it. Yeah. He, he has this amazing quote. He said that um, when you learn to work, harder on yourself than you do your career, that's what will make all the difference. And it sounds like whenever I'm reading some of the Confucius uh, teachings, that it's really all about personal development, being in control of your thoughts, your emotions, and never quitting, never giving up. Is that yeah. something that translates into pretty much all of these great entrepreneurs that you've analyzed? The never giving up thing? Absolutely. Uh, the oh, yeah. never giving up thing is is super important in the hist personal history of these entrepreneurs, you have to remember that they started their company at incredibly difficult moments uh, of the development of China. Everything was totally chaotic. And this is why they really learned how to deal with uncertainty. And this, in, in fact, is true, is combined with their deeper roots, deeper cultural roots and the learnings of Confucius. But what is important is that this personal development is not when I think it's a big difference is not to to feel happy is not just for yourself it's really to be a good citizen to be a good citizen in society to be a good citizen of your own company um and it's to be good to others so it's all these precepts of Confucius is not just for your own sake and that's why it's so impactful and I'd like to add to that is that the, please, the, the please, yeah, I could talk about Confucius all day, every day. So please, Aldo. So I think the attitude towards learning is a huge difference again between um, um, the way we, uh, we act and do things in the West versus China. Um, it is incredible to see when you see those entrepreneurs how they are constantly collecting new information. Um, I would have a meeting with, uh, I will not mention names, but uh, one of my Chinese CEOs that I used to work for, and I have a meeting with him. And I would start talking, and he's on his phone, and I think, well, he's not listening to me. But as I'm actually speaking, he's already dragging up on his phone articles I should read, or he puts me in touch with somebody I need to be able to speak to, because there's this constant need of, of finding new ways, uh, and that can only be done by studying and by learning. Um, not for nothing, uh, Chinese are, um, are excelling in universities around the world because there's a real drive that knowledge will make you better. And as Sandrine said, ultimately, you can contribute more. Uh, and that is an ongoing uh, thing. And that would certainly be uh, a lesson I would like to stipulate for your uh, listeners uh, and your team, because you never stop learning and there's always something new to acquire when it comes to knowledge. It's a great point right there. The education system in China, I would think, is 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 far superior than in the West. That's just my belief. I have no idea. I've heard I've heard otherwise, but that's what I believe. And uh, I, I was wondering if you were able to analyze some of these great leaders and see how they were not afraid of failure. 
in our school system, you're penalized for making a mistake. And I think when I, was an, when I became an entrepreneur, I realized that I become rewarded for making a mistake because then I learn. And there's a great quote. It's a Confucius quote. And it is, uh, let's see what it says here. I think it says something about, let me pull it up. I'm looking at some of these great quotes. Um, but it's basically, if I do, then I learn. And then there's one about how it's not a success for a man to never fail, but it's a success for a man to fail and to never stop. And I think that maybe the Chinese look at failure differently than the West. So is there anything that you can maybe relay to our audience about how some of these great leaders or dragon tactics is really all about not being afraid to fail as fast as possible, as efficiently as possible. So therefore you can learn and adjust accordingly. Absolutely. This notion of trying and experimenting and learning forward um, that is completely ingrained in everything that those entrepreneurs do. Um Sure. Also, in, in, in China, you prefer not to fail. Uh, but uh, obviously, in a market that moves so quickly and is so challenging and so unpredictable, you fail a lot. And as you um, rightly say, uh, you learn a lot from that. Um, and that's also why the Chinese are actually doing a lot of, um, as Sandrine said earlier, put products in the market. Um, the products may not be completely finished, but they put them in the market anyways, because one, they are first. Um, and two, they're actually um, getting feedback on the product. They can improve it. And now uh, their second uh, um, product is actually uh, even further ahead of competition. So this constant testing forward um, is, is, is much more um, um, ingrained in, in Chinese entrepreneurial thinking. Uh, we call it design thinking. The Chinese just uh, just do it. Yes, just do it. Exactly. But in fact, even in the West, um, the best entrepreneurs are people who are not afraid of failing and learning from their failures. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think there's, there's one more thing I, I want to add to this. And yes, that please. is um, experimentation is also uh, has to do with risk. Um, I think in, in, in the book, we talk a lot about wolf culture. Uh, and one of the elements of wolf culture is a complete different approach to risk. Because if you are in a hyper-competitive environment that China is, um, um, in a very fast-changing environment, um, sometimes taking a risk is actually a, 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 a smaller risk. Um, because if you were not to take the risk, you put your entire company at risk uh, with the risk of going out of business. So a Western entrepreneur would look at uh, at a risk and think, ah, that risk, maybe I should not do it. But the Chinese entrepreneur would look at exact that same risk and think, if I don't do it, I may go out of business, so I better do it. So in the West, we talk about the Chinese are risk takers, um, but they're simply coming from a very different angle. Mm -hmm. um, I worked for Anta, a Chinese uh, sportswear company, um, and ahead of the 2000 Olympics, the owner bet his entire firm on one table tennis player. Um, had he uh, not become a champion, the, the company would probably have disappeared because he would not have had any, any more money. Um, the guy won a gold medal. Um, all his marketing uh, plans paid off. And today it is one of the largest sportwear companies in, um, in China. But at I the mean, time, there were tremendous uh, numbers of other competitors. And by taking that big bet, he really stood out and he is now one of the leading companies. So that's that's a good example of, of really understanding how the Chinese 
completely operate in a different risk environment than, than we do in the West. So they're all in, right? There is a difference between somebody who's doing it and trying to make it succeed, but there's a difference between that person and somebody who's completely all in. And when you do yeah. that, you have more buy-in from your team, buy-in from the community, right? And you probably put more on the line. You almost burn the ships and uh, mm-hmm. you try harder. You're more creative. I love that. Yeah. In your uh, On your website, you talk, and I think you said wolf coach. Is that the phrase you use? Because it says in the summary, it defines the cultural spirit of a wolf pack. And uh, I found that fascinating. If you could please touch on that for our listeners. Yeah, that's one of the uh, that's one of the characteristics of uh, and particularly of the first uh, entrepreneurs in China. I think this is actually changing a little bit because the new generation, in, even in China, would not necessarily abide by uh, by uh, all the elements of a wolf culture. But clearly, the wolf culture is all about the pack, which means it's very collective. It's about loyalty to the pack leader. This is extremely important. Obviously, it's quite offensive. Uh, it's also about uh, you suffer, you take a blow, but you just get back on your feet and you continue working hard until uh, you get the meat that you are looking for. Uh, and it's also about flair and the ability to really smell opportunities and, mm-hmm. and consumers. And I think this is a, a, a whole combination. The aspects which are more questioned, I would say, today in the new generations is the very work hard, super offensive kind of attitude. This is probably less popular today, but the rest is still very, very much ingrained in the in the culture. Absolutely. I love that. And so you're saying that there's more of a um, a, a trade-off now, like back in the day, you're saying the work ethic was work, 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 everything else comes second. Now they're creating some type of uh, balance, if you will. You need yeah. to put that in, in, in historic context because um, wolf culture is actually really a survival culture. Um, and the first founders, they grew up during the, the, the cultural revolution and they literally sometimes had to fight for food in order to survive. So um, when they started their companies, they brought that survival mindset into uh, into their businesses and into their business culture. Obviously, we are now a few generations further. Um, China is much more developed. Um, living standards have significantly improved. So this natural survival thinking, of course, is becoming less because the 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 the, the current leaders or the future leaders um, have grown up in very different uh, um, different circumstances. Um, having said that, I think that that can-do mentality, that driven mentality, um, um, that is very much ingrained in Chinese culture. So although the survival mentality will will, will get less, um, the, the will to succeed uh, and to push and to look for opportunities and smell opportunities, that will not uh, not go away. And in your subtitle, you say how Chinese entrepreneurs thrive in uncert- uncertainty. I'm assuming the great ones lean into uncertainty. Where there's chaos, there's opportunity. Where there's uncertainty, there's a lot of possibility. Is that right? Is that how they look at it? This is exactly what it is. And it's all, but it has really uh, been developed into an entire set of processes. It's not just that they thrive in uncertainty, but some companies, and among the biggest ones, they have even created processes in order to handle chaos, in order to reprocess constantly, to replan constantly. Alibaba, for instance, at the time when it was really thriving most, 
they had set a very complex replanning process in order to deal with uncertainty. So it goes very far. And the same way, in the same way, they also innovate and they test new ways of managing people uh, at a speed that I've never seen anywhere else. In the West, we tend to say, uh, you need to focus. Let, let's shut out the noise. Um, but if you live in a, in a world where, uh, where, where time is a constant, you need to do the opposite because you need to be open because you need to be uh, alert for things that are changing around you. Um, to a Western uh, uh, business leader, that sounds like chaos because, oh, I, I don't have time to react to all this. But if, as Sandrine said, if you have the right processes, you can actually filter that information. And if your teams are open to be much more reactive and, and much more agile, um, there are actually a lot more opportunities that you can grasp in a fast-changing world. And again, this is critical to understand about our book. If your market grows with half a percent a year and your business grows with a percent a year, uh, then what we write about is is, is less relevant. Um, but we envision a world that is much more, um, um, as I said earlier, much more un uh, um, unpredictable. Um, we'll have much more changes, much more disruption and in such a world, you cannot longer shut out the noise. You need to be open for the noise and you need to find a way to do something with it. So in your book, do you outline the processes that are that you recommend to entrepreneurs whenever things are uh, chaotic and, and full of uncertainty? Is that in the book if anybody grabs it? Yeah, at yes the end no. of each, uh, if I, yes and no, but at the end of each chapter, we take the tactic and say what is actually usable in a Western environment and what is less usable because it's more specific to the Chinese environment. And we sort of like extract out of each of these tactics what is really things that can be used in the West. Excellent. So, so we give examples, but we don't go uh, in detail in the process. So it's it's not a complete self-help book. Um, it is more an understanding of what you need to be doing. Um, and then, of course, you need to find more details as to how you would do it. That's excellent. Because the reason why I ask is I just interviewed a fighter pilot, and she has this three-step process whenever there are chaotic times in your life. It's, you know, she was a fighter pilot, so it starts off with, uh, aviate, you know, control everything that's in your, in your three feet environment, right? How can you handle yourself? How can you speak? How can you hold yourself? And then the other one is navigate. Okay. Now identify where you're going with your business. Okay. What's your next move? Where are you going to go in the next, you know, week or a month and mm -hmm. then communicate as long as you aviate, navigate, and communicate to yourself, to your team, to the marketplace at all times, you can get through all these uncertain times. So I was wondering if there is anything like that in your book that you have these processes laid out. Sounds like you do, which I think is very beneficial for the reader. Uh, last question yeah, I have yeah. for, you, for you guys, Go ahead. a book outside of your own book that you recommend that made you great leaders within Adidas and the, and the companies that you're a part of now, anything you recommend? If I recommend a book, I go way back and it shows my age. And you <laughs> Please what, what, bring it. Yeah. What, what impacted my career? Um, there was a book called by a guy called Ricardo Semler called Maverick. Um, I read this very early in my career. Um, and he was also very entrepreneurial. Um, and until today, it is still one of the books that probably had the, the biggest impact on uh, uh, on me as a as a manager. 
um, fundamentally different approach already then with the likes of the CEOs of Ford and IBM going to uh, uh, traveling to Brazil to learn from him. A fascinating book, but um, I'm sure it's about 20, 25 years old. I've never heard of it. So uh, I love new books. How about you, Sandrine? You have any book that stands out in your life? You know what? I cannot think of any, but Maverick is actually indeed a book that makes a huge impact. Um, and I would recommend it, even though it is indeed a, not such a recent book. I think it still it still has its value today. So your website, guys, is dragontactics.com. I'm looking at it right now. Do you offer any type of service teaching this stuff, or is it basically just a website for people to pick up the book directly? Combination. Um, we, we do give, uh, we do do talks um, um, uh, at companies, at universities. Um, um, we, we do some consulting around uh, the concepts, um, but the, the the website itself is mostly to help explain the concept. Um, um, and indeed, you can also buy the book there. Wow, I'm looking at it. So you were a speaker, I think, at the Digital Summit: Consumer Centricity in Action. Is that right? Yes. Wow. Fascinating. Okay. Very nice. Guys, check out the website. Go to dragontactics.com or you can always pick it up on Amazon. It's easy to find. Um, I love this content. And uh, Confucius, I want to pull up that quote that I couldn't think of before. I hear and I forget. I see and I remember. But when I do, I understand. Oh, it's so good. And I think nice. it signifies how uh, how people who practice and do you know the actual work, they learn the most. And it sounds like that's what the Chinese culture is all about, is to do, therefore, that you understand. Fascinating. Uh, with social media, to get a hold of you guys, is there anything that you recommend outside of your website? LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Easy. Yeah. And it's, uh, and, and it's just your names, Aldo Spen Spongars. I think I'm saying that right. Hopefully, I'm, I am. But it's S-P-A-N. Yeah, it, did, did I get it right on the second one? Make sure to get four A's. If you type my surname, type four A's in total. Then you can't go wrong. Wow. All those, yes, S-P-A-A-N-J-A-A-R-S. Look that up. And then Sandrine and then Zerbib. It's Z-E-R-B-I-B. -E Easy to find on LinkedIn. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, guys, I really appreciate your time. This is fascinating stuff. I love the name Dragon Tactics. Who came up with it, by the way? Which one? I think um, it's a combination. It came uh, it came uh, quite naturally because dragons, and we are entering the year of the dragon in a couple of weeks. Uh, dragons are very important and very positive uh, in uh, Chinese culture. It's not the same image of dragon as what we have in the West. Well, I speak and Chinese a lot. don't do strategy, they do tactics. So then it already uh, ended up quite a, a name that wrote itself. Well, in my next book, it's called Resurrect the Hero Within. And I talk a lot about um, t going after the dragon. There are dragons in your life. And, uh, you know, it's basically overcoming the dragons. The dragon's there to try to keep you from your dreams. But you as the hero have to slay those dragons. And it sounds like within this book, you're outlining the tactics of the dragon, which I truly love, man. So uh, Because I it's not the same dragon. The dragon you want to overcome is actually the Western dragon that you have to slay. <laughs> uh, the dragon in Chinese culture is a very positive figure. Wow. Very benevolent, almost godlike, emperor-like. So it's, uh, I, would not, I would not slay a, a Chinese dragon. Got it. Okay. All right. That's fun. It's fascinating that cultures look at these creatures in a completely different light. It's amazing. Wow. 
I really appreciated you guys coming on here, both of you. Not many uh, times in the in their in a 100 episodes. This might be episode 100, by the way, guys. So not it's many people nice. have both authors on, and I really appreciate you both getting together, sharing your wisdom. And I recommend anybody out there pick up the book Dragon Tactics. Remember, guys, a million dollar book will lead to a million dollar life. Right on.